Father, as we come to you and to your word today, we ask to know you. We ask to love you, not just with words, although words are important, but with all of our thoughts, with all of our deeds, with all of our being. And we confess, Lord, that we don't really know how to love you that way, but what we know is that it starts with two things. One, your invitation, which you have given and which we thank you for today. And two, our acceptance, our willingness to believe that you're there, that you're our maker, and that you diligently reward those who fervently seek you. And so we're coming after you today, Lord, and we're asking that you'd come after us and that everyone within the sound of my voice would be edified by the truth of your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm up here in jeans, and I got a piece of my kitchen equipment to share with you. Maybe you have one of these at home. It's a water purifier pitcher. Now this one, I'm not mentioning any product names, but I hear it being whispered out there, and I'm sure the company is very pleased. Uh, this is not an endorsement. But I, I was thinking about this picture as I was preparing today's message. I thought this picture is a picture, a picture of something that the Lord wants to show us today. Now this particular one is made in such a fashion that it's got a little gate here. Do you see that? There's a little door, little window in the top of it. This is how lazy we have become, that it is too much effort now to take the top off the pitcher. We want a pitcher that opens for us. This is a pressure gate. The way it works, the idea is you take this pitcher and if you've got a sink that's deep enough or a spigot that's high enough, you put that over, the faucet over it, and you turn the faucet on and the flow of water opens the door. So you don't even have to open the door. But what opens it? Pressure. Pressure from the water. Now, if I take just a little small bit of water, a little stream here, like I take a squirt gun and squirt at it, will it open? Because there's not enough pressure there, right? Now, I could take a lot of pressure, and I could, for instance, empty this entire bottle immediately into it, and it would open. But as soon as that water flowed through, what will it do? Snap closed, because there's a hinge there. You say, boy... I think I get the picture. I understand how this product works, right? It's not overly complicated. But I want you to think about it in a little deeper way. This is a hole, an opening, a void. That's what allows the water to come in. The thing that opens the void, that opens the hole or the space, that opens the door is pressure from Enough volume of water flowing regularly. In other words, there's two ways in which the pressure is going to open this door. One, there has to be enough. Just a little bit won't open it. There has to be enough to actually open the door. And it has to be a continuous enough flow that it keeps the door open. Otherwise, this won't fill up. I want to talk to you today about one thing that you and I may lack. And when we talk about one thing that we lack and how Jesus identifies it in a conversation that he has with a young man who has many things, but Jesus says there's one thing that you lack, we often hear this story and we hear in it a kind of harsh judgment or a demand, maybe even almost a legalistic expectation. 
But I want you to hear it for what it is. Because as we look at the story, what you'll see is Jesus makes an invitation. What he's saying is you lack a place for God to come in and fill with his fullness. You have a lot, but what you don't have is a place of lack that God can fill. So let your giving be the opening to God's flowing into you. It's really amazing when we start to think about our point of lack as a place of provision. God says to us not, I want you to have no need from me, but rather, I want you to depend upon me for every one of your needs. Isn't that an extraordinary invitation? It's amazing that any of us would resist it, but there's reasons why we do. And in looking at today's scripture, I think you and I can help identify some of those reasons and how the Lord can help deliver us from them and into a place of flowing provision and powerful fulfillment. One thing I lack in Mark chapter 10. There is one thing you lack, Jesus said to this young man, and it was in the process of pursuing holiness. The young man came to Jesus to find out how he could live the holiest kind of life. And it is in that conversation that Jesus identifies a lack. Will you say this verse with me? In fact, I want to continue this pattern in this series. Let's stand together, and we're going to read this one verse out of the passage, and then we'll look at the rest of the passage in greater detail. But this is Mark 10, 21. Let's read it together, will you? Aloud and loudly. One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, then come follow me. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. The word of the Lord is powerful when we declare it together. One thing I lack right now is a sip of water. Will you give me a void to fill it? How does this story take place? What is this event in which Jesus makes this statement? Beginning in verse 17 of Mark 10, you'll find the episode. There's a man, he's often called the rich young ruler, who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let me pause right there and let's think for a moment about what that question is really about. Because it's amazing how a question like that just gets shoved into the drawer of religion. It's just a religious sort of question, right? But what the man is actually saying is, how do I enter into God's kingdom? And how do I live a life in which I am available to all of God's kingdom in me? In other words, this is a good question to ask. Because what he really wants to know is, how do I get right with God? How do I please God in my life so that I can live eternally with him? So that like David, I could say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of the Lord and I will dwell in his house, how long? Forever. Eternal life. And Jesus tells him to follow the commandments. If you look in that passage of scripture, you'll see that Jesus references many of those 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, familiar from the, from the days of Moses. Honor your father and mother and don't bear false witness and don't murder and so forth. And the young man says, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, I've done those things. 
In fact, ever since I was a little boy, I've dedicated myself. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Avenida. I've dedicated myself, he's saying, to living according to the law of God. And these are righteous ways of living. Now, Jesus looks at him, and do you see what's underlined there? Will you say it? Loved him. Say that. Loved him. I think it's significant that the gospel writer notes this, this emotion, how it must have been evident in Jesus' gaze. I tell you, there's something that warms me very deeply to think of Jesus looking at me as I'm posing him questions and looking at me with love. I want Jesus to look at me that way, and hallelujah, thank God he does, and he looks at you that way as well. And we'll see that look when, like the young man, we come asking for the ways of God. But I think that that love look of Jesus, as God's love does, it penetrates. Jesus looks and sees. May I interpret here? May I make some conjecture? I want to give you my interpretation of this. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But in praying over this passage, here's the sense I have about it that Jesus recognizes that what this young man is saying is true. And there's nothing in the episode that is related here that indicates that the young man was proud or vain or artificial. And there is evidence here to suggest that Jesus acknowledges that the young man is sincere. In fact, I think this very look of love demonstrates to us that Jesus knows that this is a young man who's telling the truth. He really does want to inherit eternal life. He really does want to serve the Lord, and he really has patterned his life after the ways of God, according to God's word, from a very early age. And Jesus loves that and loves him. But now what Jesus is going to identify is there's one thing you lack that you don't have, that you haven't done, that is still needed in order for God's righteousness to overflow in your life. And it's this. Go sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Don't forget that. And then come and follow me. Now the look on the man's face falls into sadness and sorrow and disappointment. He went away sad. Here's one of the most extraordinary statements in all scripture. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Talk about an upside down kingdom. In our study on the synoptic gospels in PSUM, we've been talking about how each of the gospels presents Jesus as the ruler of a kingdom that is upside down to the ways of the world. And there is a perfect example of it for us. In the world, people are happy because they have great wealth. Not really, but that's the notion. Although if you know anybody that has great wealth, and if you know a great many people that have great wealth, you'll know that that's a rather ludicrous notion because in our world, there is no absolute correlation between great wealth and great happiness. And in fact, when you meet people who have great wealth, happiness is very rarely, in my experience, one of the most important things that you see in them. You see people who often have many obligations, responsibilities, worries, demands, and stress. Now, I'm not saying you can't be happy and have great wealth at the same time. But what this experience, this episode out of the Gospels is showing us is great wealth is no guarantee of great happiness. And here, in this moment, it was an obstacle to it. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's at this point that he goes on to talk about just how difficult it is because the disciples are shocked by that. That, again, is an upside-down notion. Now, remember, in this era and in this culture, the notion was if somebody had great wealth, it was because God had blessed them with great wealth. And there was a counterpart to that. If somebody was exceedingly poor, it was because God had cursed them with poverty. In other words, wealth was seen as an indicator of righteousness very often. That if somebody was wealthy, God had blessed them. And if somebody was poor, God was judging them for their sins. So when Jesus said how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples say, well, then who can enter? If they can't go in, who possibly can? Jesus said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Now, whether Jesus was using a metaphor and hyperbole to describe something impossible, you know, like inhaling a Cadillac or, you know, swallowing a piano or a camel going through the eye of the needle, or whether Jesus was referring to a particular gate in Jerusalem that was known euphemistically as the eye of the needle because it was very narrow and camels that were burdened with lots of possessions had difficulty getting through it, we're not sure. But both propositions have been suggested, and both may be what Jesus is referring to. But very clearly, what Jesus is trying to say is, the more that someone has, the more difficult it is for them to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's impossible for human beings. Impossible, but possible with God. So what Jesus is saying is not, oh, it's easy for poor people to enter in. He's actually saying it's impossible for any human being to enter into the kingdom unless it's God who makes it possible for them. All things are possible with God, but many who look like they're in first place right now are going to end up in the last place. And many who look like they're bringing up the rear, they're forgotten and they're neglected and they're not valued, many of them are going to be at the head of the line when God's people enter into the kingdom. The structure of Mark 10, 21, the one thing that is lacked, is addressed by Jesus in three ways. Sell everything of your holdings. That's the first. Sell off everything. Then give. Sell, then give to the poor from your proceeds. And then the third, come and follow me. Sell everything you have, Give to those in need and then follow the Christ in your freedom. But can Jesus truly be serious? I mean, wait a minute. He's saying to this young man who has so much, not sell everything that makes you rich, but sell everything. If the young man does that, he'll be poor. Is that what God wants? Does God want to impoverish us? I mean, isn't this kind of ridiculous? Maybe even dangerous. If the man sells everything that he has, what will he wear? Where will he live? How will he eat? What will his family think? What about his obligations? Maybe he has heirs. Isn't this even kind of irresponsible, what Jesus is saying? The context of Mark 10, 17 to 21, gives us some grist for our mill here, some some additional information to help us understand what Jesus is saying. 
First of all, Jesus' response is particular to this individual. It's curated for the man's condition. This is not probably what Jesus would have said to, for instance, an impoverished leper who came asking the same question. In other words, Jesus' response reflects the condition of the man asking the question. And the reality is when Jesus looked at him and looked at him with love, he saw that the, the man is sincere. The man desires to know the Lord, but he also saw the bondage of the man, that all his many holdings were holding on to him, that all his many possessions were possessing him, that he wasn't free. He was bound by his wealth and obligated by it, so much so that when the pathway of life was being opened in front of him, he walked away from that open door because he couldn't let go of what was holding on to him. He went away sad because he had great wealth. But now you might be saying, well, Pastor Court, I, I, I get it. This answer is for that guy, but not for me because I don't have great wealth. So it doesn't apply to me. This is for the rich. All those fat cats, they need to hear this. But it doesn't apply to me because I'm not wealthy. Probably no one in the room thinks of themselves as wealthy. But let me say that virtually everyone in the room and within the sound of my voice who's listening to this in the Western world or in a developed nation, the chances are very good that you, whatever your modest means, have much more material resource available to you and in your ownership than the vast majority of all humanity throughout human history. The condition of most human beings has been one of a lot of deprivation for many, many generations. Now, many here, having been born and raised in the Philippines, you've seen poverty firsthand. It's not that poverty isn't, a visible, isn't visible to us here in the United States or in Los Angeles, but I know I don't need to belabor the point to you that there are people who go without basic necessities all over the world. And so most of us are living a very wealthy life by the standard of the average human experience. But I also want to say this isn't just about money. It's about an opening. Jesus is saying there's a place where you're closed off. And the only way that's going to get open is with an outpour of something. And there needs to be enough of an outpour that it will open that door. And it needs to be consistent enough that it will keep that door open so that you can be filled. See, eternal life is about not only being filled, but flowing. Not just being a repository of God's blessing, but being a channel of it. And the amazing thing is, your need and my need, the place where we lack, is the place where God will flow through us. What happens if you fill this up? If this, if this gate gets opened, right, and you fill it up, it gets full, right? And then when it's all the way full, you can't fill it anymore. How can you fill this once it's full? You pour it out so that it can be filled. Jesus emptied himself of all of his divine privileges. Philippians 2 talks about this. There's a fancy Greek term for it, kenosis. It just means pouring out. It says Jesus, who was God, became God an infinite figure, right? An infinite being became a human being, a finite. This is a finite vessel. 
The Bible refers to you and I as jars of clay. There's only so much that we can be filled, and then we're full. Now think of the young man as a pitcher that is full, full of righteousness. He's done the things that God has asked him to do. He's lived according to the principles of God, full of provision. He's been blessed, and he considers all that he has a blessing from God. But what Jesus says is, you want to know how you can flow. You want to know how you can be full forever. And in that, there's one thing you lack. You lack emptiness. You need to pour out what you have so that you can be filled to overflow. But as long as you're full with what you've got, what you've got is all you've got. So as long as you hold on to that which you can't hold forever, you'll never be available to the forever that wants to overflow into you. See, what Jesus emptied out of himself, he didn't empty out past tense because there's no end to him. So when Jesus pours out, he keeps on pouring. There's an end to you and I. Once we are filled up, the only way for that outpour of eternity to continue to flow in us is to empty out the finite so that the flow of infinity can flow constantly through us. Now, many of us already have lack, and that is why it's harder for those who have to hear this message, because if you have not, you're ready to be filled. You know you have a lack, and you're ready to be filled there. But if you don't recognize that you have a lack, then you'll think, I don't want to give up what I've got. Jesus told this story. There was a man in the marketplace and he was a very shrewd man. He knew the value of things. He was expert at assessing what was on sale. And one day, he saw the most extraordinary item. It was a precious, priceless pearl. And this pearl, which was on sale for, for a very high price, he knew to be worth almost infinitely more than what it was being sold for. It wasn't cheap. This man, who was a man of means, recognized the only way he'd be able to buy that pearl is if he went home and liquidated all of his holdings, sell his clothes, sell his possessions, sell off his flocks, release his employees, sell his home. If he sold everything that he had and liquidated it all, he would have enough to buy that pearl. You'd say, well, that's an expensive pearl. But here's what he knew. The pearl was worth far, far, far more than all of that. So if he sold off all of that and gave it for the pearl, he would be getting so much more. So he did it. And Jesus said, that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is worth more than everything you have. But it will cost you everything you have to enter into it. What kind of fool would see a pearl like that and bargain for it? You know what? <laughs> I'll give you half what you're asking. And he's thinking, I can sell half of everything I have, still hold on to that, and get the pearl. What might the man selling the pearl say? If I can continue a parable of Jesus, I think the man selling the pearl would say, hey, come here. You and I both know this pearl is worth a lot more than I'm selling it for. Now, I'm not going to raise the price but I'm not going to lower it. So if you want to buy it, sell everything you have and it'll be yours. 
but it's not. Not available for less. The kingdom of heaven far exceeds anything and everything that you and I could ever achieve in this world. And it is on sale for you. It is, in fact, the free gift of God. But what God says is, you won't be able to receive it until you give away everything that you are and have. So Jesus' response is specific to what that man is held by, but it is a general response. This is one thing that we all lack. The one thing that we all lack is the willingness to give everything to God. It's common to all of us. But it is also this promise from God. If we will give everything we have to God, God will give everything he has to us. And as we are constantly giving out from what he gives to us, he will continue to give more. And it's not just financial. Many of us have a lack in our lives that is like a void, an open space. And what God is saying is, if you won't hide that from me, if you'll give that to me, what I will do is I will fill that space with myself. And because I'm infinite, I'll overflow that space. And out of that, out of that, will pour out my blessing to the world. You too can be a pitcher where your lack is the place that God pours into you and your weakness is the place where God pours out of you. So that not only are you filled with eternity, but you're pouring eternity into the world all around you from God. What a beautiful image of vitality and real wealth. That is the treasure of heaven. Eternity flowing through us. So the one thing that is lacked is addressed in three ways. And those three ways give lessons to us about how you and I can identify the places in our lives where the abundance of God may be obstructed by our unwillingness to give away. When he says to the young man, sell all of your holdings, Jesus is teaching us a lesson. Don't let what you're holding on to hold on to you. If you want to think about that camel trying to come into the, into the gate called the eye of the needle again, the problem is the camel is heavy laden with all these possessions, all this baggage. And what Jesus is saying is, give away that baggage so that you can fit through that passage, so that you can enter into the city of God. Don't let your possessions possess you. Give to the poor. Jesus is specifically saying, give what you have to those who have not. Give out of your abundance to those who are in need. It is the very model of the early church who, who lived by the motto that Jesus had, had expressed, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That is not just a, a bromide. It's not just some, some you know, saying that we kind of throw around. It shouldn't be. It's actually axiomatic. It's a reality that the greatest blessing comes as we give. And when you learn that, you actually take greater joy in giving things than in receiving things. You learn the reality of that truth. And then follow the Christ in your freedom. But recognize following Jesus has a cost. No one 
Build, no contractor builds a tower, Jesus said, without counting what the cost is going to be before you break ground. No king goes to war without figuring out what is going to be the cost to my military reserves and to my kingdom. So if people in the world count the cost, how much more should people of the kingdom recognize that Jesus is saying, it's everything. You've got to give everything. Jesus puts it in the terms of pick up your cross. Die to yourself so that you can live in me. Counting the cost of following Christ means we've got no home but heaven. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless, if you will. He was dependent upon people to put him up, but more than that, he was dependent upon the Lord, and the Lord provided for him. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be homeless. What it means is you recognize that God is your shelter, that you recognize that God is your covering. No hope but God. Remember the rich man who had all of his wealth piled up and he said, I'm so blessed. I've got crops and I've got animals and I've got servants and I've got all these riches. But that very night he died and the Lord said, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. So your hope is not in what you have here. Your hope is in the one who is eternal. Your hope is in the Lord. No harmony but the kingdom. When Christ comes and calls us, the nature of his call often challenges us. The man went away sad because what Jesus was asking of him was something he wasn't willing to pay. And if he had paid it, what would have happened in his household? Can you imagine what his parents would have said? Why are you listening to this crazy rabbi teacher? Jesus, yeah, he's right. He doesn't even have anywhere to live. So he told you to sell everything and give to the poor. Are you crazy? What are you doing to us? And there could have been discord and grief for him, right, to deal with. And that would have been part of God's call on him in his life at that point. So the cost of following Christ is a call to carry our own cross. It does call us to confront challenges and to give away things that are treasured by us and to sacrifice our entire lives to him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What a strange thing for God to come and say. But what Jesus is acknowledging is that in fact, it is because of God's extraordinary demand that these things happen and because of the upside-down nature of the kingdom that it's at odds with the expectations of the world. Anyone, Jesus said, who loves their father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I remember as a child that this verse really troubled me because I didn't, I didn't think that I qualified under that. I remember saying to God, I know I'm supposed to love you more, but I don't think I do. <laughs> and I don't know how I could. I mean, I can't see you. I can't hear you. I can't touch you. And my parents give me everything. My life comes from them. You know what? Don't be troubled by the verse. God never, ever shot me down with a lightning bolt when I confessed that to him. In fact, I suppose, if I may be so presumptuous, that God was looking at me with love. 
and understanding my child heart. But it was a childish heart, not childlike, childish. Because as I matured, what I realized was that that love that I had for my parents, it was a reflection of my love for God. And in fact, loving God was one of the best ways that I could love my parents. And the very thing that I had said about my parents, that everything I had came from them, that they had given me life, that that was true of God before it was even true of them. What God began to show me over time, as he's shown you too, I think, is that he will put love in your heart for him if you will offer up to him that place where you lack it. And that's actually what I was doing. I was saying, I don't have this love for you, but I think I should. And we can do that. We can lift up to God our doubts, our fears, our grief, our grievances, if we do it in faith, if we do it with this expectation that if we desire him, he will give of himself to us. But when he does that, what you find is, yes, the love for God goes deeper than love for anyone else. And in fact, it deepens your love for everyone else so that you not only love parents and siblings and children, but you can love strangers and sinners and even those who would persecute you. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, says Jesus, is not worthy of me. Let me put it to you this way. If you won't allow for this door to be opened, you won't be able to be filled. And that door is opened when you pour out. Lose your life and let Jesus fill you with his. Peter said, well, we've done it. <laughs> we, we've left all of that behind, so what do we get? <laughs> right? Peter's like, hey, we qualify. I think I, I'm eligible. And Jesus, in fact, says, you're right. No one who's left home, brothers, sisters, mother, or any place of provision for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will go without receiving all of that a hundred times over in this age and in the age to come, along with persecutions. But eternal life. Eternal life is therefore equated with entering the kingdom of God. And treasure on earth is contrasted with treasure in heaven. Listen, God is not calling us to be impoverished. God is not a God of poverty. God loves and cares for the poor. But don't think that God doesn't love and care for the rich. As I mentioned before, the poor are often more available to that love and care. And the rich often feel they don't need it. And that's one of the problems with having plenty. But don't make this mistake and think, well, then I will gain favor with God by becoming poor. God doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be rich in eternity. God is the richest being who has ever been or ever will be. God is not opposed to wealth. He is its very source. But what he recognizes is the things that the world considers wealthy are not worthy, but the things that are truly valuable are the things of eternity. And so Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven and invest in the kingdom of God. And one way that you can do that is by giving away what you have and aiding those who are in need. It's essential to the holiness of our lives that we're involved in this. If we're not doing that, there's a doorway to holiness that we've closed off and bricked up 
with all of our wealth. The one thing that is lacked is essentially to trust God more and to love God more than any earthly treasure or provision, just as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on, on earth. Why? Vermin can destroy, thieves can steal, rust can destroy, but store up in heaven where things are eternal and no enemy can come against what you hold there. But wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The man's heart was in his earthly treasure and that's why he went away sad. So the one thing lacked is ironically gained by giving away. And there are some profoundly practical ways that I want to conclude our time with talking about how you and I can experience the overflow of God by sharing our resources, by giving to others, and especially giving to those who have the greatest need, the poor and those who lack, and by putting others before ourselves, regardless of what their condition is, whether they're poorer than us or richer than us or at a comparable level, the Bible teaches us and Jesus calls us to put the needs and the well-being of others first before our own. Sharing our resources is one of the most common calls of Scripture. There are many, many places we could turn, but I bring just a few to your attention. Matthew 5, once again, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, give to whoever asks of you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In Luke 6, likewise, he says, if anyone takes something that belongs to you, don't even ask for it back. Can you imagine that? Somebody takes what's yours, and you say, that's fine, you can have it. Again, we might say, can Jesus possibly be serious here? Yes. Is this just hyperbole? No. Does he expect us to literally do it? Yes. Can it be done? Yes. Is it fun? No. <laughs> Not at first. You know why? Because you're holding on. And you're not going to let go without letting go. So if it hurts, that's how you know it's got a hold of you. They say, give until it hurts. And that's what I'm calling you to do this week. I'm calling you to give in a way that costs you. You say, well, I give my tithe. Good for you. You don't have to do that. People are going to start getting nervous now. I'm serious. You're not obligated to give a tithe. And if you think that you have a reward from God for giving a tithe, I'm telling you, you've got a penalty coming. Do you want to live under the law? The tithe is part of the law. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You having been freed from the law, would you put yourself back subject to it? You say, well, pastor, when you give a tithe, you get a reward. You need to fulfill all of the law to get that reward. Have you fulfilled all of the law? Can you fulfill all of the law? Then do away with thinking in legal terms. Lest you die under the law. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. Yes, he did. To fully fill the law. You and I lack. And that's exactly what the man recognizes. We lack holiness. So therefore, we must empty ourselves so that Jesus can fully fill us with his holiness. 
but it cannot be achieved by law-keeping. You want to give a tithe, God bless you. And I thank you. But if you think that you are checking a box that says, I've done the giving I need to do, then you're living a legalistic kind of life in that, in that manner. Yes, I believe that as you give to God, you will experience God's flow to you. But it is not some contractual arrangement by which you can say, well, I gave my tithe, so now God, um, <laughs> I'm waiting on the, on the uh, return on my investment there. That's the wrong notion. God is not the IRS. The kingdom is not this. Uh, did you give a tithe? Oh, there was one year you missed a tithe. Uh-oh. Well, now let's see. On balance, it looks like, oh, you're going to get a refund. Uh-oh, you owe. That's not it. There's no one righteous, not one. So if we are appealing on those terms, we all owe far more than we could ever pay. But Jesus came and paid it all and said, I will give to you. I'm not against giving 10% of your income. What I'm actually saying is Jesus says, give 100%. Oh man, I was waiting for the day when pastor would say, I'm supposed to give all of my income to the church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to God. 100% to God. Right? Now, some of that is going to factor out in giving that you give to the church. And if you don't give to the church, then I cannot be uh, employed and we cannot have this building and electricity and all these vital things that we appreciate so much. So your giving is deeply appreciated and deeply necessary, but it shouldn't end here, right? It's also that you give in many ways across many different avenues of giving because what you recognize is my whole life belongs to God. It's all up for grabs. It all belongs to him. I'm not holding on to any of it. Here's how you can determine if there's something that's got a hold of you. I really want you to think about this. What's the one thing that God could come and say to you, there's one thing you lack and it's this, give this away. What's the one thing that if he said that to you, you'd have to walk away sad? That's the thing that you need to give. And I don't know what it is. It could be something very small. It could be something that doesn't even have a lot of monetary value. It may not even be a monetary issue at all. It may be something different about how you live your life. Maybe it's forgiving someone. And God would say, there's one thing you lack. Forgive your mother. Forgive your, your father that abused you. There's one thing that you lack. Forgive your brother who stole from you or took away family property that rightly should have been yours. Forgive him and let him have it. In fact, go to him and say, what I did get out of the inheritance, I'm going to give to you. That's the kind of thing that God will speak to. And you'll go, I can't do that. And if that's what you say, then you're the rich young man walking away without God's abundance. But if you will say, that hurts, and I don't want to do that, but I know that's from you, and I'm going to do it, you will experience an outpouring of God's blessing in your life. But it very well may be that it is a financial thing. I remember, I debated whether I should tell this story or not, because I didn't want to tell it. But I, I, So I'll tell it about a young man I knew. I'll do it like Paul. I knew a young man who had a very uh, extensive collection of music CDs in his 20s. And he loved it. 
And much of that music was godly music, and all of it was something that helped him to feel the joy of life and the joy of creativity. And one day the Lord said to him, I want you to sell all of that, take the money, and give it to the poor. Now, he didn't have anything very much, this young man, and it only amounted to a few hundred dollars, but for him that few hundred dollars was a lot. But it was a test. Will you give away something that you really value? if I ask you to, because you value me more. And in doing that, the young man experienced a blessing, a blessing that wasn't financial, but it was a release from something that was holding him that he didn't even know was holding him. Maybe there's something like that in your house. Maybe there's something like that in your life. Whatever it is, Give in a way that costs so that you can experience the one who fulfills. And look for those who are in need and give it to them. But now here's where I've broken the rule. Don't let your right hand know what the left hand is doing. Don't talk about it. So I willingly gave away any reward I had from that by sharing it with you. Don't let anybody know what you're doing unless, you know, it's your spouse or something. You're going to sell the house, tell your spouse before you sell the house. (laughs) But don't make a big show of it. Amen. Don't give so that you can get a claim. Don't do it so you can have a huge tax write-off. I'm not saying you can't take the tax write-off, but don't do it for that. And give to the poor. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will reward them for what they've done. Proverbs 19:17. The kings of the Gentiles put themselves first. But Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you should be the least. Put yourself last and serve others. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, but in humility, put others above yourselves. Value them before yourself. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. To demonstrate our discipleship in Jesus by giving away what we have to others in need, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. One thing you lack, he says, you lack giving away what you have, and putting others first. Do you have a regular pattern of committed giving? You say, well, that's why I tithe. You just just hit me over the head about tithing. I'm not saying don't tithe. I'm saying give because you want to, not because you have to. Give what you choose to give, but make it a regular pattern of giving. And do it with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Do you desire to give more to God? Do you pray to him, Lord, I want to give more to you. I want to find more ways to give to you. How can I find opportunities to bless others? I know of someone, this isn't me, but I know of someone who regularly had this habit that they ate out a lot. And what he would say is once a week when I'm eating out, I find another table and pay their bill. I do it quietly. I don't make a big deal about it. He was sharing it with me because we were talking about this notion of giving and how much he's been blessed by it. But he said, I'll go into the restaurant and I just pray, Lord, is there someone here uh, that you would have me meet their bill? And then he just comes over and says, you know, I'd like to pay your bill today. And um, uh, I'm doing that because of the love of Jesus. Imagine doing something like that. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, there are many ways that you could find to help people day in and day out. Is there anything that you're holding on to that you wouldn't give away if God asked you that's what you want to give? 
Do you look for the people in need or do you run in the other direction? When you see somebody coming down the street asking for handouts, do you go the other way? Or do you ever give to them? You say, well, some of those people aren't honest and some of them are using it for wrong things. Yes, yes, you're right. But some have entertained angels without being aware of it. And some of those people could really use your help. Some of them are very honorable and honest people. And I'll tell you what, none of them are any worse than I am. I remember once at a gas station, somebody came up and was asking me for something, and I honestly had nothing I could give them at the moment. Um, I didn't have any cash on me. I didn't have any food on me. And so I felt badly. But the man gassing up next to me said, can you imagine coming around and asking for handouts like that? And he was so harsh. And I said, well, actually, yeah, I can imagine it would be really, really hard to do. And I would hate to be in the position where I had to do that. But you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Do I look for opportunities to bless other ministries of the Lord? Not just my local church. The local church needs your support. I'm not asking you to turn away from helping us. I'm saying there's more you can do too. If we're giving just to get a reward or a claim or a deduction, we're missing out on the heart of God. And it's not just money. It's time, it's talent, as well as treasure. Having places a regular outpouring of service. Maybe what Jesus says is there's one thing you lack, a place where you give to other believers. You lack being a Sunday school teacher. You lack being an usher. You lack being involved in a prison ministry. You lack being a Bible study teacher. Maybe it's that kind of an outpour that would be the release in your life. Are you willing to give up your time for others in need? How about in your workplace? Would you be willing to take a little bit of time away from what you need to get done in order to help people who need to get something else done? I'm not saying disrupt the order and organization of your workplace. I'm just saying, could you be generous in your workplace like that? Might the Lord call upon you to do that? Or do you only give what you want when and if you feel like it? This rich young man, I'll bet he gave a lot to the temple. I'll bet he gave a lot to the Lord. It's not that he wasn't a giver, because if he was someone who was following the law and following the rules, you can bet he was a faithful tither. And I'll bet if Jesus would have said, you know what, give 50%, he probably would have done it. It's the totality of giving all. That was the thing that really challenged him. And it challenges us. In fact, we would say, that's impossible. I can't do that. But it is possible that we may lack precisely because we don't give or because we don't give regularly. Remember what Jesus said. Remember the analogy also of this. This gate opens when there's enough volume to open it and that volume continues. Jesus put it this way. With the measure that you measure out, that's the measure that will be used of what's measured into you. So if you're giving out a little, you're only getting a little a little of God, a little of eternity. But if you're giving out a lot, a lot of God comes in. Giving even a little, though, is valuable if a little is all we have. The widow's might. She only had a little bit. You might be saying, Pastor, I really don't have a lot. You don't have to have a lot. Just give what you have, and that will count for God. David asked to know and love God. And in the knowing and loving of God, God looks at us with love and says, as you come to know me and as you desire to serve me, there's one thing you lack.
give away all of your treasure so that I am your all in all. That everything you have is in me. That nothing you have doesn't belong to me. I'll test you this way, says the Lord. If it's really mine, I can tell you, give that away, and you'll give it away. Because A, you know it belongs to me, and B, you know you belong to me, and I will take care of you. So that you will not lack anything if you don't lack me. The one thing you lack is God. All of God, all the time. That is the life eternal. Father, we know that there are things we hold on to. Some of them are possessions. Sometimes it's money. Some of it may be other things. Hurts, wounds. Maybe it's our time. Maybe it's our talents. Maybe it's our giftings. Maybe it's our dreams and ambitions. But whatever it is, Lord, we offer it up to you. Will you do this, friend? Take your hands and cup them as though you were holding water in your hands. And put in that, in your mind, by your spirit, put into your hands whatever it is that holds on to you, that you have to give, and offer it up to him now. Maybe it's even got a name. Maybe you realize, I'm going to give a, a larger gift to the church, or I'm going to give a larger gift to a minister. I'm going to go out and find somebody down on their luck, and I'm going to help them. Maybe it's that forgiveness thing. Maybe it is something you own that you think, the Lord is saying to me, I need to let go of that. That fancy thing that I love so much, I love it too much. And the Lord is saying, give it away. Whatever that might be in your hands, just lift that up to him. Your whole life, everything. Lord, we offer ourselves to you, living sacrifices now. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope to be, we give it to you. And we receive, Lord, in our emptiness, we receive your fullness today. Friend, maybe... It's your very life and soul that you need to give to him today. Do that. Put your soul in your hands and put your soul in his hands. Let him take you. Don't hold any of yourself back. He won't hold back any of himself from you. Even right now, he receives you. He washes you with that flow of provision in life that cleanses you from every sin redeems you from every sickness, heals you of disease, opens your eyes and enlightens you, delivers you out of bondage, the satanic strongholds, the fleshly carnal bondage, and into the place of freedom and life. Don't go away unhappy today because God's asking too much of you. Give everything you have and receive the joy of the Lord. It will be your strength. I agree with everyone making that prayer right now. In Jesus' name, amen.